as we're still in the infancy of the year of 2023, I think it's important for us to find an instigator in our lives to help us to remain with intentionality in the faith, but also in conversion of heart that we are all seeking, or we are all called to seek at least, every moment of every day. I think we can find that word of advice in today's responsorial psalm. That we just sang together, we just sang, Here am I, Lord, I come to do your will. It's a very poignant thing for us to reflect and meditate upon the will of God. Here am I, Lord, I come to do your will. Many times people will come and say, Father, I've prayed for the will of God to be shown to me, but he just doesn't tell me what he wants. In fact, I remember my own life going through seminary, I would say, Lord, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Just reveal it, put it out there, make it easy on me. Crickets, Lord, you want me to do your will, right? Yeah. Tell me what it is. Crickets. And sometimes we get then upset with God because he doesn't actually lead us and guide us the way we want him to or in the manner that we want him to or in the time frame that we want him to. We want to hear, as I did as a child, this is the voice of God. Take a left at the next exit. That's what we want. But when it comes to God, he is ironically even more direct than giving us specific advice. He tells us through his word, the scriptures, He who follows me picks up his cross. He who follows me loves his neighbor. He who follows me loves the Lord his God or her God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, and with all of his will. That's what it means for us to follow the will of God. And so, when we're trying to decide between whether we should take a left or a right, if we're stuck at that the the parable in our lives where the two roads divide in the woods, do we take the left or the right? The Lord calls us to ask ourselves the same question. Will this path, either that you choose, help you to embrace God's love? Will this path help you to love others? Will this path lead others away from God's love? And if the answer to the first two are yes, and the answer to the third one is no, that path is within the will of God. Because remember, God creates us with free will. He wants us to decide and to choose for ourselves within those parameters and those boundaries. The problem is, at some points in our lives, we want that freedom. Other times in our lives, we're like, no, God, don't give me freedom. Tell me exactly the road to follow. We want God to be like a high school guidance counselor where he just says, do A and then do B, do C. Don't skip ahead to the end and do D. 
do C prime 1, C prime 2, and then go to D. He wants us to, though, follow where our hearts lead us. That's not to just say and go do whatever we want to do, but to reflect and process what is it in our lives that helps us truly embrace His love. That was my big struggle in seminary, because I was really on the fence for a long time. Of the eight years in seminary, I'd say five of those years, I was on the fence, one foot in and one foot out. Lord, are you calling me to be a priest, or are you calling me to be a father, to be a husband? His response was, uh-huh. No, 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 it's not an uh-huh, it's an either-or, because priests can't be married today. Which are you calling me to? Well, let's look at that litmus I just put out there, the two yeses and the one no. Does being a father and being a priest help me to embrace God's love? Yes, it can. Does being a priest or a father help me to share God's love? Yes, it can. Does being a priest or a father and a husband lead others away from God's love intentionally? No. Well, shoot. He gave me my answer, and his answer was, decide. The problem was I wanted a, one is better than the other. To which he says, they are both good. No, I don't want a, they are both good, Lord. Tell me what to choose. And he says, choose love. Okay, but give me which one of those allows me to embrace God's love more. Uh Uh-huh. Lord, really? And many times we get so upset with God that we then either just make our decision and say, hope this works out, or we just dismiss God and say, then I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I gave you the opportunity to show me where to go. There's an old parable that I heard with relying on God growing up, and it was about a flood that was taking place in say, like the bayou down in Louisiana. And there was a big hurricane that was going to come in. And so someone came knocking on this person's door and said, hey, we're evacuating the town. You've got to leave because if you don't, you're not going to make it. Now, you don't understand. I have faith in my God. My God is going to save me. Have a nice day. A couple hours go by, the flood waters come in, the hurricane begins, and so now the person's up on their second floor, and a boat comes by and knocks on the window and says, is anybody home? Yeah, I'm here. Can I help you? You've got to get in the boat. Get in the boat. Let's go. No, my God is going to save me. He's going to stand by me. He's going to take care of me. I appreciate it, but I have more faith in my God than in what you're trying to give me. Time continues to go by. The floodwaters continue to rise. Now the person's on top of their house. And this helicopter comes by and drops down a ladder from the helicopter and says, this is your last opportunity. The floodwaters are coming in. You've got to leave. You've got to abandon what you're doing. No, I have faith in my God. My God will save me. Helicopter leaves. Person drowns. Goes to God and says, God, I had faith in you that you would save me. What gives? I sent someone to your door. I sent someone to your window. I even sent you a helicopter and you didn't pay attention. And that's many times how it is for us when the Lord speaks to us. We get upset that he doesn't give us 
what, where, why, or when we want our answers. But he does guide us. He shows us where we are called to respond and how we are called to respond. But many times we're so distracted in our lives that we can't pay attention. In fact, did you know that there's a point in Mass where because people got distracted, there's a portion of Mass where we say, pay attention! We don't use those words. Do you guys know what that part of Mass is? It's when we ring the bells. Do you know why they ring the bells during Mass? Because in the old liturgy, pre-Vatican II, many people would have private devotions and wouldn't actively, consciously participate in the liturgy. And so when people were off doing their own devotionals during the liturgy of the Eucharist, when the priest was about to do the prayer called the Epiclesis, where he was calling down the Holy Spirit to change the bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, we would ring the bells. Pay attention, this is important! We ring the bells to remind us of why we're actually there. And then again, when the priest holds up for adoration and veneration the body of Christ in the presence of the host, we ring the bells three times. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. At the same time, when we hold up the chalice, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Because we do get distracted in life. Because we're so busy worried about what's coming up later today or what has happened in the past that we can't focus on what's going on in front of us. And so sometimes we have to be guided back to that straight and narrow. But the Lord knows what our hearts need. That is the good news, my brothers and sisters. The Lord knows what we need. The problem becomes we don't want what we need. It's always kind of a joke when I go into either a doctor or a dentist's office because doctors, dentists, and priests are all the same. We each go into each other's office and say, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'll try and change. I go to a doctor's office and he says, now, Father, your diabetes, you got to work on this. I know, I know. Less sugar, less diet soda, more exercise. I go to the dentist. He says, now, Father, your teeth and those cavities are going to keep costing you money. I know. Less sugar, less soda. That's about all it is for that. And then they come into my office. Yes, Father, we know we have sinned. Less sugar. No, there's nothing with sugar and soda. <laughs> but you get the point. That many times we intellectually know what we're supposed to be doing. But as St. Paul says to, in the letter of the Romans, I do what I don't will to do. And I will to do those things that are difficult to do. Why is it that I have this thorn in my flesh? Time and time and time again, I have come to you, Lord, and asked you to take it away from me. And your response has always been the same. My grace is enough. My grace is enough. And so you may ask yourselves, why does Father preach so much about reconciliation and confession? because that's where we receive the grace 
to combat those sins in our lives that hold us captive. In fact, in the sacrament of reconciliation, those sins that become habitual in our lives, when we confess them, God says, here, utilize this specific grace towards that specific sin, that specific addiction. Utilize it. Embrace it. Grow. Learn from it. Turn away from those sins. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. And sometimes we receive the grace of the sacraments. And sometimes we go to the sacrament and forget that grace is even present. Because we go because we have to. We go because it's been a long time. We go because we're having a bad day. And that's a good place to start. But then what do we do with that? How do we grow out of the sacraments and allow them to grow in our hearts? One of the beauties of the sacrament of reconciliation is the anonymity. We can go into any priest anywhere in the world, confess our deepest, darkest, worst sins, desires, actions, thoughts, and deeds. They will give us absolution. They will tell us, more or less, that you are loved by God, which you are. And then they will say to us, go sin no more. That's beautiful. The problem is, we are the only ones at that point that can keep ourselves accountable. Because everything you say in the confessional remains there. Every sin, every thought, every desire that you say under the seal of the sacrament of reconciliation remains there. Which is beautiful in the sense of releasing our sin but sometimes becomes a detraction for us in our lives when we habitually confess the same things, but we go and sin the same. We don't go and change our ways. I've said it once, I've said it a million times. Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, is a definition of insanity. Why then, when we go to the sacraments, do we think it's going to be different when we don't affect the change that God calls us to embrace. Here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. And the will of God is that not one of us ever spends a second not remaining in his love. The will of God is having us each know every moment of every day that we are enough, that we are good, that we are holy, that we are loved. But sin blinds us to that reality. And after it blinds us to that reality, it distracts us from the truth, the way, the life that is incumbent in the person of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But the Lord loves each and every one of us in this room and live streaming and around the world so much that not only does he offer us reconciliation, he sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to live life like us in all things but sin. How many times when our parents get mad at us do we say, you don't understand, and of course your parents do understand, you realize that as you get older. How many times have we said to God, God, you don't understand what you're putting me through? And he says, I sent my son so that I would. 
so that I could. Well, touche. <laughs> we don't want to hear that. Because when we're upset, when things aren't going our way, instead of trying to convert our hearts and change our lives, we want to point the finger at whose fault it is that things are wrong. If you're listening to the Bible in a year timeline, we're in the book of Job right now. I can only imagine how he felt. He did nothing wrong, yet everything was taken away from him. In the beginning, he had the same response we're called to have. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. God bless you, Job. But then he gets physical infirmities. And he says, Lord, you giveth and you taketh away. You giveth me the boils, taketh them away. Yet he remained with them. And his friends then look at him and say, what did you do? What did you do to deserve this? How did you piss God off this bad? Like, what could you have done? What could you have said? Man. Because in the history of humanity, I haven't seen it go this bad for anybody. You must have really messed up. And he says, I've done nothing. I've done nothing. And that many times is how we feel, unjustifiably so. I've done nothing to deserve what I receive. In fact, what we receive is nothing compared to what we deserve. Never pray to God, give me my just desserts. Or give me what it is that I deserve. Because he paid the price of it for us. Eternal death. The price of sin is death. There's not one person in this church this morning that has not sinned. So what we each deserve is death. But here's the rest of the story. God loves you so much that he wills that you always remain in his love. Not just in this life, but for eternity. So when we're struggling with the path laying out before us, when we don't know which way to go, when we don't know right from wrong, may we ask ourselves those three simple questions. Does it help me embrace God's love? Does it help me share God's love? Does it lead others away from God's love? And ultimately, may our response in every word, deed, and desire be, Here I am, Lord. I come to do not my will, but your will.